presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fourth in our series of uh, sessions together uh, on the topic testing, testing, discovering what God already knows about us. And just by way of review, I want to remind you that uh, regarding the purposes of God's testing, and that is that God never tests us to discover uh, what we might do because God is omniscient. He already knows what we're going to do before we do it. But God's testing primarily falls, uh, the, the purposes of God's testing, that is, falls into uh, primarily three areas. First of all, He uh, tests us in order to reveal to us the genuineness of the faith that we, uh, that we profess. Secondly, He tests us uh, in order to grow us up and to mature us because in showing us uh, that maybe we're not trusting Him in certain areas the way we should and the testing exhibits that, then that gives us the opportunity to uh, learn to trust Him more. It always takes us back to the cross. What is it that I'm trusting in other than the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work? Am I trusting in my own abilities to do things? Am I trusting in my own winsomeness to win people over to my way of thinking? Those are obviously gifts from God, but we can use them as manipulative uh, in manipulative ways. And as a result of that, God intends uh, for us to grow and mature. And uh, the way he, one of the ways that He does that is that He reveals to us things about our faith so that we uh, learn to endure and so that we uh, uh, we become steadfast, I guess that's another way to uh, to express it. But then, of course, there's uh, there's the most what uh, the third way, the most important thing, most important purpose in God's testing, and that is for His own glory, because uh, God uh, reveals Himself in great ways to us as we learn to trust in Him, and uh, our our lives just change dramatically. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The problem is there's, there's when, when God does change us, when He puts a new spirit within us, when He writes His law in our minds and in our hearts, it's a, it's a wonderful change and we no longer need to fear death because to be absent from the body means to be immediately present with the Lord. But at the same time, there's a, a lot of things just hanging on to us. We've learned how to deal with life in uh, not, not in good ways, but we've learned how to deal with life in manipulative ways. We know how to manipulate people. We know how to manipulate circumstances. Uh, very often there's a lot of frustration that's involved with that, and a lot of that gets carried over into our lives as believers, and that's one of the reasons God tests us in order to reveal the those things to us so that we'll see that we're trusting in something other than Him. Now we've looked uh, at Joseph for the last two sessions, uh, Joseph of the Old Testament. One of the reasons that uh, we took two sessions is because there's so much information on Joseph. We looked at him as a prisoner and we also looked at him at the test that he faced as governor as well. Today we're going to skip forward several hundred years to David, and we're going to look at his fugitive years. Uh, remember, the Bible tells us, the Bible doesn't exactly tell us how old David was when he died, but um, we can do the math. It, it, the Bible does tell us that he was 30 years old when he, uh, when he uh, became king, and he reigned for 40 years, so obviously David lived somewhere around 70 years or so. Uh, but we're going to see that um, from the time that he was anointed as apparently a teenager, um, that there was there was a period of oh probably some uh, 
uh, seven to ten years that he lived as a fugitive, and that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, in order, uh, incidentally, uh, you should have in your possession not only a, uh, a set of notes as usual, but you should have a map that looks like a tapeworm. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's entitled David's Flight from King Saul, and it illustrates the uh, the route that David and his uh, ultimately his merry men and very often their families with them uh, were taking in order to elude. Uh, Saul, because Saul was after them to kill them. But uh, let's uh, let's just think a little bit about the background before we look at David himself as a fugitive and the test that he faced. Incidentally, the tests that uh, we're going to talk about today with David are essentially the same tests that uh, that Joseph faced. Uh, there's a, there's a, a test of being patient with God's timetable, uh, and also there's a test of uh, dealing with uh, uh, other people who who have certain weaknesses and uh, the thing that we're looking at today the the overall test I guess you could say uh, and I put this in your notes is that when kindness is repaid with contempt um, by kindness and we need to be sure we've got our definition straight by kindness we're talking about usefulness to others that includes being generous to others it could be include uh, being friendly to other people but it's the idea that uh, that that we are doing something useful for them. I, the Good Samaritan is a good example of that, and the idea of uh, of kindness is that we don't really have any ulterior motives. Sometimes we do nice things and useful things for other people because of uh, what it'll get for us. You know, uh, the old term "one hand washes the other." But when you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, obviously there was nothing that the guy who was the crime victim could offer to the Samaritan. So that's what we mean by kindness, but but uh, we're talking about the test when kindness, David's kindness that he had exhibited is repaid with contempt. And by contempt, we mean disrespect. It's the idea of someone considering... Uh, considering someone else as worthless or what they've done as worthless. So that's basically what we're going to be looking at. But in order to look at that, we really need to understand a little bit about the background. Saul, who was the first king of the United Monarchy, was crowned around 1050 B.C. In fact, uh, I put in your notes a passage there from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's just read that. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Remember, Samuel was the, was the last of the judges. And Ramah was his, uh, was his home base of operations. They said to him, You're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. In other words, we want to be like everybody around us. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And what this tells us is that during the time of the period of Judges, God was their king. And God just used men like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and, and here mentioned Samuel to, uh, to, judge, uh, to judge the people. The, the, remember, the judges were not, uh, were not national kind of figures. They were more like regional figures and if you uh, if as you read through the book of judges if you'll have a, a map close by and you read the names of the places where these judges uh, minister and do the things that they do you'll see that they don't just go all over the nation of Israel they're generally located in one particular region well, the people were tired of that. And of course, uh, Samuel's sons weren't doing the things they were supposed to do. And the people were just ready for a change. And uh, God acknowledges that it's it's not Samuel, it's not the judge that they're rejecting. Because uh, they didn't have any problems with Samuel. But what they were rejecting was God and God's 
plan and purpose at that time. And so God acquiesces to them and gives them a, uh, a king. And uh, the, the chief asset of, uh, of Saul, now this is not Saul of Tarsus, this is Saul the son of Kish. Uh, the chief asset that, that Saul had was he was uh, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. So he looked like a king. I mean, they just they wanted somebody who would go out in front of them to battle and sort of lead the way and uh, on a more of a national type of scale. But what happened, well, God empowered Saul to be king and to do the things that kings are supposed to do, but Saul made some very uh, um, unwise decisions, and as a result, and we don't need to get into all of that, but as a result of that, uh, God rejected him from being a king, and of course God already had somebody picked out that none of this surprised God, and God already had a person who was uh, a man after his own heart who would be uh, the second king of the united monarchy. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Samuel says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. In other words, you didn't do what God told you to do. He, has re- he, God, has rejected you as king. And one of the things that happened at that point is that the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and some tormenting spirits uh, began to attack Saul. Now, some people say, well, well wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what is this about the Holy Spirit leaving? Well, remember that, uh, and you particularly see this in the Old Testament, very often the Spirit of God would come upon men. For example, um, Cyrus is called my, uh, uh, King Cyrus the Persian, who was clearly a polytheist all his life, uh, is referred to uh, by God as my anointed one. Uh, God uses people for all different kinds of things, and when God placed the Spirit on Saul, it was an empowering Spirit so that he could rule and do the things that were necessary uh, to take care of the, the, the Hebrew people. But since uh, Saul has rejected God's Word and God has rejected him, the Spirit leaves him. Now, don't, some people get all excited and say, well, wait a minute now, do, do I need to worry about the Spirit leaving me? in terms of salvation. And the Bible is clear. The Bible, uh, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And one of the uh, one of the great things about the new covenant is that uh, God not only writes His law in our minds, <clears throat> excuse me, and in our hearts, but His Spirit comes to take up residence with, within us. Remember, Jesus talked about that. <laughs> Excuse me. Jesus talked about that in the upper room uh, before uh, going to be crucified, and uh, he said, "He said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another Comforter." And that word, another is the word alos. It doesn't mean another of a different kind. It means another of exactly the same kind that I am. So God's promised He's not going to leave us, but. So this, this the Spirit of God, which has empowered Saul for ruling, doesn't have anything to do with salvation, has departed from him and tormenting spirits have, uh, have come in. <clears throat> and so uh, one of the things that happens is because God has rejected Saul, He tells Samuel, He says, look, I want you to go over to Jesse's house. Uh, around Bethlehem, and uh, uh, there's, there's somebody over there. You're going to anoint him, and so Jesse, I'm sorry, Samuel goes over there, and uh, Jesse calls all his boys up there except for one who's looking after the sheep out in the pasture. And uh, the, the first person, I, I believe, as I recall, it was a it was a, a guy named Eliab. I believe was the was the oldest son, and it says when uh, when Eliab stood. Before before Samuel, Samuel thought to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Because again, it's um, it was a matter of appearance. The, the guy just looked like a king. And of course, that's when God spoke and said, Look, 
I don't look at things the way you look at things. You look at things from the outward. Uh, I, God says, I look at things, uh, I look at the heart. I look within. And so eventually, David is called in. He's anointed in front of all of his brothers. And uh, it's, it's a little hard to tell at this point whether his brothers actually realized that this was anointing for him to be king, whether that had soaked in or not. But nevertheless, uh, David is in his apparently in his teens, probably his mid to late teens at the time, based on some of the things that we'll see early on. But he's been a shepherd. He's learned to care for his flock. He's learned to defend his flock. In fact, he talks about that later when he has a conversation with Saul. And he became a personal musician to Saul. Now, this this tormenting spirits that would that would come upon Saul. The 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 guy said, "Look, we can't we can't handle this. We need somebody who can come over here and play some music. What is it? Music uh, calms the savage breast, I believe is uh, is is the is the quotation. And so the word gets out. Well, look, there's there's this guy who's uh, he's he's a warrior. He's uh, He's he's a godly man. He's uh, he's a musician. He's all of these things. Let's get him. And so David is selected on that basis to come, and he would come. He would uh, he would come to Saul's court when Saul was having one of these episodes, and play his uh, play music for him. And Saul Saul would calm down. And then apparently David would go back home and tend to his tend to his duties at the house. Uh, he also later on was made uh, armor bearer for Saul, but David. Uh, no, all right, so David is in a in an interesting situation now, where he's working at the court from time to time. So he's seeing a lot of the things that go on. I mean, after all, he's he's just a kid who's who's been working out in the pasture a lot, and uh, even his dad uh, Jesse didn't uh, have the uh, uh, the the foresight to. When when Samuel showed up to say, "Let me get all my sons over here," since you want to uh, do whatever it is that you're going to do. Anyway, the, the the how is it then that David is going to grow in his popularity and become the one upon whom all of the uh, Hebrew people really set their set their sights, set their vision on him, and he's going to become a very popular person. Well, that all happens when uh, when the Philistines attack and Saul goes out the meet them with his army and several two or three of uh, David's brothers are sent out to uh, go out they've been drafted they go out with Saul's army and uh, one of the things that they that they had to do back in those days was that the family back home would have to send provisions to the folks who were uh, their own front lines i mean they you know they didn't have uh, Cooks and quartermasters and all that stuff. All that stuff was supplied apparently from uh, from home. So Jesse sent David, and David got over there. And of course, the day he got there, there was this huge guy about nine feet tall who was uh, giving the Israelites a really hard time. And it was just inconceivable to David that uh, that that they would put up with all of that, especially the way the guy, this guy named Goliath, was. Uh, Insulting all of their, uh, insulting their the the one true God, and so we know the story about David defeating Goliath, and as a result of that, uh, David's fame really began to grow. He he became very popular. Uh, it's at this point that he be- became the armor bearer for Saul. I believe it was around this time, and also Saul put him in charge of a lot of things. And so uh, now David, instead of coming and going uh, he was pretty much there all the time serving in Saul's army and notice the passage from 1 Samuel chapter 18 that's in your notes uh, and you see the success and the popularity of David it says whatever Saul sent him to do David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well and which is which is interesting in that David at this point cannot possibly be 
more than in his late teens or at the most in his extremely early 20s. And yet even the officers in the army are just enamored with David and the things that he could do. But again, the, the, uh, the incident with Goliath uh, had, a, had a great deal to do with that. It said when the men... And here's, here's a turning point and here's why David became a fugitive. When the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. They were rejoicing because the Philistines had been whipped. And they're singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And it's at this point that Saul really gets begins to get paranoid about David. And in fact, David becomes a target uh, for uh, spear and javelin practice uh, several times in, uh, in Saul's court. And David finally has to, uh, has to flee <coughs> as a result of uh, multiple attempts on the part of Saul to kill David. And so David, uh, David runs away to get away from Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and again, this is in your note, notes, uh, we see the, the folks who attached themselves to David. It says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. This does not include the families who were uh, who were with these four hundred men? In fact, this sounds this sounds uh, very much like uh, uh, the beginning of a new church. Sometimes it says those who were in distress or in debt or are discontented. Uh, and I mean, you you think about it. If you got a bunch of people who are essentially are marginalized in in society, and they're the ones who are going to come and 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 be your. Uh, be your folks. Well, that essentially sets the stage for what we're talking about. Some of you thought we're never going to get there uh, for David as a fugitive, but it's it's important to understand the background uh, of what's going on. Now, David's situation at this point, when we come to 1 Samuel 24, is that he's trying to survive Saul's intentions to kill him. Uh, on top of that, now he has the responsibility to care for his followers and for their families. That is, how, how, how in the world am I going to take care of all of these people? Where are we going to get food for all these folks? It was a difficult time for David spiritually during, uh, during this, uh, these, these fugitive years. There are a lot of references that David makes to the Lord. But we don't see him praying for guidance uh, during most of this time. Uh, there's, uh, as far as we know, there were no psalms that David wrote during this particular period. There were psalms before. There were psalms that came after. I mean, even uh, after the the incident with Bathsheba, which would come many, many years later, uh, uh, that resulted in in a number of. In, Couple of psalms, at least, being uh, being written, but uh, none during this particular time. Now, First Samuel twenty four uh, tells us, a, uh, shows us a test about uh, related to being patient with God's timetable. Now, think about it. What God's done is uh, Samuel has anointed David as king, but who's still ruling right now? It's Saul. And David is on the outs with Saul, and so he's he's waiting to take the throne. When is, you know, okay, I'm supposed to be king. When is God going to put me into that position? 1 Samuel 24. The time is around 1020 B.C., something uh, around that. It says, Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men. And what was Saul's intention? It was to uh, relieve the land of David. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when He said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now when did God say that? 
That's right. God didn't say that. Be careful when well-meaning friends begin to tell you, you know, I bet God's doing so and so and so. Well, God may be doing so and so, but He may not be either. It may be that some of your friends, in this case, uh, David's friends, they were getting tired of being fugitives as well. They were getting tired of having of a wife coming to them and saying, well, now, honey, you know we got five children to feed. What are we going to do? This is, this is getting old. They're feeling the pressure as well, and so they're going to put some pressure on David say look here's your chance to end this thing and you, and get the picture they're in the back of the cave so their eyes have acclimated to, to things and Saul walks in there out, out of the desert region unaware and of, of what's going on uh, that anybody's even in there he just goes in there to relieve himself and uh, as and so his eyes are not acclimated so he doesn't he doesn't know what's going on it says, David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's con- was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Uh, the conscience is that, that inner sense of what's right and wrong. Now, now, be real careful when it comes to conscience. Jiminy Cricket said, let your conscience be your guide. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, now, you should never violate your conscience, but the truth is, is that our conscience has to be taught by the Word of God. Uh, there are some people who... Uh, who <clears throat> well, the Bible talks about there are a lot of different... That there are several different kinds of consciences. And, uh, and some people have such a strict condemning kind of conscience they haven't learned to enjoy the freedom that they have in Christ. Some people are real libertines. They just uh, kind of let it rip. And their consciences have not been schooled by the Word of God the way they should be. But it's that inner sense of what's right and what's wrong. But ultimately, remember, the, the what's right and what's wrong is determined by what the Scriptures say. Alright, <clears throat> it says uh, he was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Uh, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Notice, God put him there. And if God wants him out of there, God will get him out of there. Or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave, just oblivious to anything that was going on inside the cave. It says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down. He said to Saul, This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. See, that was the test. Here's your chance, David. Are you going to go ahead and get rid of him? It makes sure make life simpler for you. And it would relieve all the pressure that uh, that you're experiencing right now. You can go ahead and assume the throne. David said, no, 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 no. God put him there. And if God wants him out, God's going to get him out. The Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but didn't kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. Why? Because he was the Lord's anointed. He recognized, David recognized, that God had put him in that position. And so it was up to God to take him out of that position. And that's what God would do eventually uh, at Mount Gilboa. But that was several years away. There was, there was a lot more misery for David to have to go through. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom Israel of Israel will be established in your hands. Well, and we should ask ourselves, well, if, if Saul really knew that, why doesn't he just submit to it? Well, 
Saul's paranoid. And Saul, like us, he wants what he wants his own way. He wants to be the chief. He wants to be the head. And so while it sounds real good, uh, it says Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They stayed in the wilderness, which was wise because it was not long before uh, before Saul and his army was out chasing David again. David knew better than this. But if you had to grade David on this first test that we're talking about here, the test of patience with God's timetable, what kind of grade would you give him? Of course, we would give him an A, maybe even an A plus, because he's he's done exactly the right thing. All right, he's he said, okay, you put him there, you take him out, Lord. Whenever whenever it's the right time, I'm just going to wait on you. Uh, we don't like waiting, do we? Uh, our timetable, we think, is much better than God's, and but somehow God just never asks for advice uh, regarding that. Well, that brings us to the next chapter, chapter 25. Now, David has just passed a great test, and he's done exactly the right thing. Well, you know what the Bible says. Let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, here's another test that's coming right on the heels of all of this. Now, meanwhile... That doesn't mean it happened right away, because uh, if you read the Scriptures closely, you find that, uh, again, David goes back to having to hide and to flee, and all of the misery uh, that goes along with that uh, was continuing. But in 1 Samuel 25, we pick up another story. It says, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel. Now, this is not the Carmel, Mount Carmel, where Elijah was. That was on the seacoast on the Mediterranean. This, if you look at that map, that looks a little map, looks like a tapeworm. You can uh, you can see uh, Maon uh, in there and Carmel, um, numbers uh, nine and ten, uh, where where. Uh, and this is this is the you notice this is just west of the uh, of, of the Dead Sea, so this is down in a in in a very arid region anyway. But it says he had some property down there. He was very wealthy. His name was Nabal. Incidentally, that the name Nabal means fool. Now, why a mama or a dad would name their child fool, I don't understand. But it says and his wife's name was Abigail. Now the name Abigail means her father's joy. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, that is a descendant of Caleb, was surly and mean. That means he was bad-tempered, he was unfriendly uh, in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Now, so what would that be? Of course, that would be the springtime. That's when you shear sheep. You don't you don't shear sheep in the fall or the winter because your sheep will get cold then. What you're going to do is you're going to shear all that wool off during uh, during the springtime, and then, uh, uh, in fact, that was a real time of feasting. That's that's when you're going to uh, make your money because you're going to sell that wool that you uh, that you're that you're collecting from the sheep. Some of the sheep you're going to after you uh, after you get the wool, you're going to sell the sheep to people uh, to to use for meat. So it's a it was a time of uh, uh, feasting and a time of celebration. Because we uh, we made it through the winter time, and uh, now it's time to, uh, to to go to the bank. In other words, so while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, "Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name." Uh, Incidentally, these uh, these these festival times of sheep shearing were not only accompanied by a lot of feasting and drinking in celebration of the bounty that people had, but also it was a time of sharing. Um, people people just went out of their way apparently to uh, to share the the goodness and the bounty that God was giving to them. But you can imagine if if uh, if uh, this guy named Nabal, whose name means fool, if he was surly and mean, that is, if he was bad-tempered and unfriendly, this thing's going to take a bad turn before it's all over. 
All right, he says, uh, You go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and to your household. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, notice the shepherds who were looking after Nabal's sheep during the fall and the winter time, they were with David's men. It wasn't that David's, David and his men were with them, but David and his men were hiding out. But it was a, it was a, it was a protective thing on the part of uh, of these uh, shepherds because they knew that if they stayed with David and his uh, his four hundred an increasing number of uh, uh, merry men that uh, these uh, these marauding bedouin uh, tribes would not uh, would not be stealing the sheep so he said while your shepherds with us we didn't mistreat them and the whole time they were at carmel nothing of theirs was missing in other words we provided protection so it's a it's a real time for sharing now for feasting and uh, enjoying God God's bounty. It's a time for sharing, and really, you've got an even greater reason for sharing, and that is, uh, we've we've looked after your shepherds and we've looked after your sheep. No, nobody's bothered them like they usually do because we were around. He says, therefore, be favorable at this festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. This is a customary kind of thing to do. It was an expected sort of thing to do. So David is not doing anything out of the ordinary. This is not protection money like in Chicago where David said, we look after you, now you owe us, and if you don't pay, we're going to get you. Although it's going to look like Chicago here in just a minute. But... This, this was, again, this was a normal kind of thing that went on. It says, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message. The message that David had given them to give him. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Well, now everybody knew who David was. He's the one that killed the giant. He's the one who's been, who's been leading Saul's army. But he goes on to say, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Notice uh, he's he's denigrating the service that uh, David had provided to Saul. And he says, why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, put on your swords. Now, what do you think is going on here? See, David's hot. And I mean hot with anger at this point. Not only is he, not only as you'll see before we finish this section, not only does he plan to get rid of Nabal, but he plans to get rid of every male who belongs to Nabal. What's he? Do? He's going to avenge himself. What's he? Avenge himself of what? Because he's been disrespected. Because of his reputation. Because of all the pressures that he's feeling. I, I, I'm, I was counting on this to provide for for all of these men for whom I'm responsible and their families. Put on your swords. And about four hundred men went up with David. What happens is after after the word while the word is going back by means of David's men back to David, what happens is uh, Abigail Miss Abigail somehow was not around at the time that that David's men showed up, but as soon as she got back to the to the ranch there, a bunch of servants or several servants came to Abigail and explained the situation to her and said, "Look." Uh, these guys came. They were really good to us. They they protected us. We didn't lose anything. They were great to us. And what David was asking was not anything that was unreasonable. And uh, and Master Nabal just insulted David. Miss Abigail, you got to do something quick, or we're all going to be in trouble. Verse 14, one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, and Abigail lost no time. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. Notice, here's the providence of God. 
David's on his way to avenge himself. Now here's a guy who passed the test uh, about waiting on the Lord. Well, it's one thing that this that Saul was anointed by God. See, this this is the kind of this is the way I would figure it if I were if I were in David's sandals. I say, yeah, God anointed him to be king, and if God wants him out of the way, uh, God will get him out of the way. But Nabal. Uh, there's nothing about him that's anointed, and I'll tell you if he's gonna if he's gonna be that way, I'll deal with Nabal. But God says revenge is mine; I will repay, and we'll see. That's what God did, incidentally. So Miss Abigail is headed out. In fact, she's she's got she's got several mules in tow with her uh, that are just loaded down with raisin cakes and wine and all kinds of goodies that. Uh, to uh, to to bring to David, and uh, I'm sure to to mollify the situation, but also uh, again it was a, a time of normally a time of sharing. David in verse 21, David had just said, "It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good." See now, what is it that we're talking about here? We're saying when, when I the test, this test, when kindness is repaid with contempt, how do we deal with it? All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert, so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Notice David was so infuriated that he is ready not only he is not only ready, he is prepared to kill Nabal, but to kill every male that's associated with Nabal. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Let me tell you. Miss Abigail should remind us of something in the New Testament when Jesus takes all of the blame of all of God's people upon Himself and dies on the cross for us. Let the blame be upon me alone. Not share the blame. Not, not, not share the blame with Him, but let it be on me alone. That's what Jesus did. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is fool, and folly goes with him. And David acquiesces to all of that. In fact, David even talks about that. We'll see that here in a minute. When After David acquiesces, Abigail says in verse 26, Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, let this gift, all, all the stuff she's been hauling around with the mules, let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let me tell you what, this wasn't a Lord's battle David was about to fight. It was his own battle because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him, and has appointed him leader over Israel. What does that mean? When when you are the king, then my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. Let the blame be on me. David, one of these days, God is going to establish you as the king. And you've been willing to wait. And you're, you're waiting right now. And that's great. You, you pass that test. And you're passing that test every day. Because you don't, you don't take dealing with Saul into your own hands. But David, one of these days God's going to put you on that throne. And He's going to build, He's promised He'd build a lasting dynasty for you. That means your, your son and your, your grandsons after you are going to be on that throne because of God's great grace and mercy. 
to you. Don't allow yourself to have this bloodshed on your conscience where you have taken revenge for yourself. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. See, David realized, boy, my patience with this guy just went out the window. He sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who's kept me from harming you, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. You remember what happened to Abigail? You remember what happened to Nabal? Well, that's that's not part of the story here, but uh, it's not in in your notes. But uh, in case you're wondering and you have you've forgotten or haven't read this story recently, uh, when Miss Abigail got back to the ranch, uh, Nabal, her husband Nabal, was pretty much wasted and he was he was drunk. And so you know it doesn't do any good to talk to a drunk. So she waited till the next morning after he had sobered up somewhat. And, uh, and she explained to Nabal, her husband, what had transpired and what almost had transpired. And as a result of that, he apparently had something, the thing that was described sounded like a stroke. And uh, several days later, he died. You see, again, God dealt with the situation. David didn't have to take the situation into his own hands. And isn't it great that he sent Abigail uh, as as the as the rescuer for David at this point? Incidentally, what happened to Abigail? Well, Abigail became David's third wife. He was already married to Michael, who was the uh, daughter of Saul, and he had married a uh, a, a woman named Ahinoam. Uh, a lot of these marriages in that day. Now, remember, God had uh, back in Deuteronomy, God had warned the people, said, "Look, when you get into the land, and uh, eventually you get a king." So, see, they're asking for a king. Was no surprise. When you have a king, uh, one of the things that that king must not do is he must not multiply wives to himself. Because if he does, they'll turn they'll turn his heart away. And David uh, did multiply. Well, he had a number of wives, but nothing like Solomon, uh, his son, who had, what was it, 300 wives and 700 concubines. And, uh, and it was his wives who turned his heart away. Most of those wives that he had were, were political alliances. If you marry the, the, the daughter of the king who's on your border, there's a pretty good chance that you're never going to have to deal with, uh, with going to war with that, uh, with that king. So, Abigail's quick action and her wise intercession uh, really paid off. Count the insult against me and forgive me. There, there's a there's a picture of Christ where where all of the sins of all of God's people are placed on Him, and God poured out His wrath on His Son. And Jesus, having lived the perfect life through faith in Christ, God forgives us our sins. And He imputes to us the very righteousness of His Son and has imputed to the Son all of the sin and all of the wickedness of all of God's people. Jesus has died for all of the sins of all of God's people. Praise be to God. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.19 that we're to keep a clear conscience. It says, cling to, he says, he writes to Timothy and says, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Again, you can't always let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience has got to be schooled and educated by the Word of God. What conclusions do we draw from all of this in our in our last minutes here together? I would point you to that uh, those final thoughts and application there in your notes. First of all, and this relates uh, to the first test uh, about. Uh, 
we don't like God's timetable very often. So things don't always go the way we hope they will. Uh, a flat tire means we miss lunch with a friend. A late cold snap keeps us off the beach during spring break. Routine maintenance on a server thousands of miles away delays a very important message that we were expecting. That's just part of living in the 21st century. Well, if these kind of events are a normal part of life, why do they upset us so much? If God is sovereign, and He is, and if God controls all things, and He does, and if we believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, and we say we believe that, then why do we get so frustrated and angry when these things happen? The answer is we don't like God's timetable. We don't trust God's timetable. We'd rather have it in our time and rather have it our way. Patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's not a, a self-generated product of the determined believer. Uh, that would, uh, this self-generated thing that looks like patience is really an artificial kind of fruit. We were talking about earlier about, uh, talking about the subject of kindness. You know, the, the, the word kindness has the idea of usefulness to others. Uh, and again, we, we think of the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, how was he useful? Well, he you know he 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 bound up the guy when 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 his own people wouldn't have anything to do with this crime victim. You know, here's this Samaritan who comes to the rescue, even uh, puts him on his own animal to take him to the local um, inn, and tells the innkeeper, says, "Look, I've got some business to transact, but I'm going to be back in two or three days, and when I do, uh, I'll pay you for whatever other charges there may be. But take care." of this guy in my absence. That, that He was being useful to another person. That's, that's true kindness. But there's an artificial kind of kindness as well. And that is the whole idea of manipulation. Because very, very often, if we're not careful, we'll do something useful for other people, but we do something useful for them because we think it's going to benefit us. Now, how did this Samaritan think it was going to benefit him to take care of this beat-up Jewish guy? Well, of course, he didn't think that. But be careful of artificial fruit. You know, Jacob fixed stew for Esau, but he did it in order to deprive him of his birthright. Delilah spoke great words of love to Samson. That sounds like kindness. But her whole purpose was to deprive him of his freedom and his power. I think that's why we need to pray, God, test me, examine me, show me my faults. Because I don't see them, I'm blind to them. Show me what's wrong with me. Lord, I, I want to be, I want to grow and be like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I know I'm never going to make it in this life fully. No way. But I want to, I want to be moving in that direction. Well, what about this other thing about patience with the weaknesses of other people? People like Nabal. People upon whom maybe we, we do in one of those rare moments, show somebody some kindness. Got no, uh, no, you know. In, in this case, David, David did expect a benefit, and I and I give you that. But the reason he expected a benefit was not because he had simply done this, but because that was the normal kind of thing that that you do at this particular time of year and at the time of sheep shearing. You know, other people. Even other believers in Christ don't always do what's right. They don't always keep, we don't always keep our promises. You know, a trusted friend perhaps betrays a confidence. A hired worker pads the bill that's presented for us to pay. The person who volunteered to help you with the project didn't show up. Proverbs 25.19 says, Like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. Well, Solomon was right when he, when he wrote that. Reliance on an unfaithful person in times of trouble is like a bad tooth or a lame foot. 
And so what happens is you and I learn to detest dependence on anyone other than ourselves. Even if our motto is, well, God and I have this covered, generally it's only a little bit of God. It's mostly us. It's mostly me. And while it's true that God is sovereign in determining the end from the beginning, it's equally true that God ordains the means to the specified end. Almost without exception, that means includes fallible, disappointing, frustrating people. 1 Corinthians, again, 1 Corinthians 10, I think I mentioned this earlier, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice, the way of escape is not merely getting out of the situation, being extricated from the situation. He says He'll provide the way of escape. Why? So that you can endure it. Endure it. See, again, one of the reasons for God's testing is to build our maturity, and that includes the whole idea of endurance. One other thing, it's, uh, it's not in your notes, but uh, that <clears throat> just, just a little aside, we've got about two or three couple of minutes left, so I'll just mention this. Uh, in Romans 15:4, it's written, for whatever written, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. See, David's problem seems to be that he had lost his vision of God's care for him. He was leaning on his own understanding. He had lost or quenched his spiritual hunger. There's, there's no references to his prayer or seeking God's guidance. He had lost sight of God's promises, the, the promise that God would make him king. And the result for David was one was that of despair and disillusionment and even a desire for revenge based on his wounded ego uh, and, and maybe even the care of his faithful followers. David's turnaround came with Abigail, with God's providence of sending her and reminding him of what he already knew. And he began to trust again to trust God for guidance. And he trusted God to work out His purposes for him. You know, resentment is one of life's greatest and a lot of times most subtle temptations that we face. Uh, resentment's a form of anger. And it sure can result in the desire for revenge. But revenge is God's purview alone. Romans 12 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, the responsibility of true believers in Christ is to forgive those who hurt us. God has a purpose for every person. We need to remember this. Nothing could thwart God's plan. God, uh, in, in Isaiah 14, in a different context it says, but it, the truth is still there, that the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will stand. <clears throat> For the Lord Almighty is purposed, and who can thwart Him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? And remember, the greatest part, the greatest purpose that God has for every person is that our primary objective should be what God's primary objective is, and that is glory, His own glory, as Christ Jesus is exalted in our lives and becomes more evident to those around us. Praise be to God for His grace and His mercy. Father, thank You for Your kindness. Thank You that You are God and there is no other. Thank You that You are not only the Creator, You are the Sustainer, not only of the universe, but of we, Your people, that You have brought us to Yourself and You have not 
left us alone to fend for ourselves on our own. But You have a solid plan and purpose for us. The Lord Jesus at Your right hand at the place of honor and power constantly intercedes for us. The Spirit of God who indwells us prays also always according to Your will. Thank You that You have promised that You who have begun a good work in us will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to walk carefully before You. Help us to walk with our eyes upon You. And help us in those moments in which we feel as if we're getting a raw deal and people just maybe don't appreciate us the way that they ought to. Help us to remember that we didn't appreciate what Christ was doing when He went to the cross. But we appreciate it now. And we praise You for that. We praise You for our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.